morning, Veritas. I hope and pray you're doing well. I hope and pray you're ready for the sun to shine and uh, to get an early morning baking going on. Uh, my name is Matthew. I have the opportunity to be one of the pastors here at Veritas, get the opportunity to be the campus pastor at our location in Urbana. So if you're visiting with us, we're excited to have you, as Jess already said, and just want to encourage you. And uh, yeah, we hope to see you more than today. But it's great to be in Vinton. Um, I think for myself, not that I have the most extensive ministry experience, but I think this is the first time doing Sunday morning outside for, for me, uh, so it's pretty special, and this, this location has been pretty awesome. So yeah, it's great, but we're going to cut down to um, business in a sense, and we've been going through the life of Jesus. And so we talked at the beginning earlier this summer about Jesus Christ and his birth and the tensions there of like... Is he born? Was he born a man? Like, was, did he, God really come to earth? And, and that's a pretty important aspect of who Jesus Christ is. And if you're skeptical, I'm glad you're here. Um, because I hope to build a case for who Jesus Christ was. And if you think of Jesus Christ as a guy who walked in a white robe with a purple sash and walked kind of three inches off the ground with a halo, I think the Bible really challenges that picture of who Jesus Christ is. And we see Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Walking amongst the people, doing what the people did. And, and it's a really encouraging thing to me in my walk with Christ is that Jesus Christ endured some of the things I endured. Uh, we talked about Jesus Christ facing temptation. We talked about him submitting to baptism, though he didn't need to be baptized. He was like, I'm with my father. And, and he submitted to that under John the baptizer. And he did that. He was saying, I am with this mission that God has for me. And then we see him, you know, last week we talked about his compassion. And we learned that his compassion provides a depth of attention, care, and a solution unlike anything the world has to offer. And so in some ways, it's kind of an excuse for the church. Like, we're like, Jesus is the answer. And, but he is. He, he really is the answer for the many issues and distractions that we have going on in our world. He really is the answer. It might be hard to wrestle with that, but when it comes to compassion, he's the foundation for compassion. And so we've been kind of walking through again the life of Jesus, and we're going to continue that on for a few more weeks. But today, today, today is the lucky day that we get to talk about Jesus Christ getting angry. And so when you see in our teaching circle uh, the schedule come out for the summer or whatever, you know, you look through the topics, and I'm like, oh, Lord, please don't give me the one on anger. Amen. And here I am. So uh, I get the one on anger, and I, I feel a little bit, uh, it's been challenging. It's been challenging to study this for the last month-ish. Um, I, I'm, I struggle with anger. Um, I, I get angry over stuff. I get frustrated. You know, and anger has a million different names. And even as I talk about anger today, I'm not just talking about punching holes in the walls or, or yelling. And certainly that might be your, your issue, something that you struggle with. But, you know, anger has that three-day quiet treatment thing. You guys recognize that at all? I won't make you raise your hands. That'd be awkward. Uh, or perhaps it, it plays out in bitterness. Like, I will be angry for 20 years at this person because they did this. Or resentful, right? Again, kind of waiting and longing because they did that back then. I will withhold some of myself from them. 
And so anger plays out in so many different ways amongst really every person. And so um, Jesus Christ also got angry. And so today we're going to discuss the question of like, how, how did Jesus handle angry situations? And really have an opportunity to really evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves the question like, what is your anger anchored in? Or are we getting angry about the right things? And I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like in the last couple of years, there's been a whole lot of, of anger out there. And I wonder if it started in the last couple of years or if it was just revealed in the last couple of years. And this is a tension, especially for us in the church, called to lean into holiness, called to like follow this Jesus that we've been talking about here. And so I know it's a struggle in my own life this morning. It's going through the roundabout over by Urbana. And someone stopped at the yield sign. Drives me bananas. See? It drives me bananas. That's another term for anger. Okay? It created, it was in frust- I was frustrated. Uh, my morning hadn't gone as planned. And this person stopped at the, at there. And so I've had since time to confess that too. But um, it's just amazing how it plays into our life. It's something important that we need to look into. And we need to go to our master and say, Jesus, how did you handle this? What were you angry about? I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago, and one of my favorite authors was speaking, and he shared a story about a dad who came home from work and kind of looked through the, past the garage into the backyard, and he's like, what, what is that out there? And it slowly dawned on him that that was the set of his tools, strewn across the backyard. And so, lovingly, he barges into the house, looks around all the rooms, and makes his march up the stairs whips open the door and says, what were you doing in the garage? What were you doing with my tools? Haven't we talked about that? And then that speaker, that author, paused and he looks at us in the crowd and he's like, how many of you in that moment think the child was thinking, what is the reason for the hope that this man has? I want to be just like him. And at that point, too, I was like, man, am I the only one in my row that's crying? But no, I was, I was with 50 other people. And we wept because sometimes, too, our kids, like, they bring that tension out in us. And so, again, we wanted to see, Jesus, what, what were the reasons that you got mad? So if you have a Bible, we're going to have it up on the screens if you can see it. Or if you have a Bible or have it on your phone, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. I'd love for you to have a Bible because I'd love for you never to take my word for it, Okay. Go to the Bible, read the text, study the text. And again, when you're speaking for about 35 minutes, you don't have the opportunity to paint a complete picture. You might think 35 minutes lasts a while. We think it goes like this. That's why we go to 45 so often. Um, So we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start out here uh, with Jesus Christ doing ministry. He's out ministering to the people. Okay, Mark 10, I'm starting in verse 12 or 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so again, I I, I almost picture Jesus in a setting like this. You know, maybe there's no concrete. Maybe there's no awning up here, of course. 
but he's just communicating and he's sharing the truth, right? And Jesus is going to do ministry for three years. So in a sense, it's kind of shortened. And so the disciples, you know, they're like, okay, kids, like you're a distraction, you're noisy, like let Jesus work, leave him alone. And Jesus, you know, you think about it, like kind of catches wind, like what's going on over there? Now, and it's important that Jesus Christ becomes indignant at the disciples. So often Jesus is angry with the Pharisees and the other religious people. But even his disciples got caught up here in a brief moment where they were like, there's something more important here. And the picture that we see here is a group of children, perhaps with their parents, want to worship Jesus. They want to acknowledge who he is. Like, Jesus, just lay your hand on my child. Let me... Let me be, let him be in your presence for just a brief moment. And Jesus is indignant. The Greek word that we get the word indignant means irate, frustrated, or even uh, grieved. Jesus was grieved that these little worshipers were being withheld from coming to him. And he points this out like these people are a picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is full of people who love Jesus. And yet these people, in a sense, the religious people, the disciples are like, well, you're going to create a distraction. You're going to create a distraction. We can't have that here. Like, Jesus is busy. He doesn't want your worship. And we see that Jesus is like, whoa, what are you doing? Let the little children come. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. Young, passionate, driving for Jesus. I want Jesus. Okay, so there's a picture there of Jesus being indignant. And here's the, the deal. When it comes to anger, we need to realize that anger is often associated with grief. You know, it says here that Jesus was indignant or that he was grieved, angry, right? And oftentimes, if you don't process in life the changes in your family, if you don't process in life the changes in your health, if you don't process in life differences, it's not just loss of a person, though it could be. It might come out of you as anger. Okay, and so Jesus is grieved. You see this emotion with the anger for his disciples. He wants worship. He is God. He is actually worthy of worship. He is worth those children following. And when they're hindered from following Jesus, from worshiping Jesus, he's grieved in anger and angered. We see Jesus do that. So let's, let's move on here. Let's go to Mark chapter 3 and check this out. This is another story. There are more stories of Jesus being frustrated. You can check them out. I would encourage you to do so. But Mark chapter 3 starts out with him entering the synagogue, kind of a place of worship. Okay? Let me read. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus, right? What are they watching him for? to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, this is a picture of bitterness and resentment. I am going to keep my eyes on you, and if you make a mistake, I am going to point it out to you. Okay, the religious people. These are the religious people. And why it's important, I think, to teach this message to us, the church, is, is we are the religious people. Let's stop talking about the Pharisees as, as not being us. Let's stop talking about religious people as the guy you meet on the street or you work with who's like, yeah, of course I believe there's a God. 
let's pull the religious people into very normal people like you and me. People who might know a bunch of the Bible. Certainly we don't know it all, right? And we struggle in certain areas, right? But, but we're religious. We show up when the doors are open, when we meet in the park, okay? And so it's concerning here that the religious people, the ones, some of these religious people had memorized the first five books of the Bible by the time they were nine. I can barely memorize Psalm 23. But these guys knew. They knew the law in and out. And they knew that there was a God named Yahweh. And he knew that in, on the seventh day he rested on the Sabbath day and commanded it to be holy. They knew that in the Ten Commandments, it wasn't a new command to follow, but a reminder, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And had they studied and known the first five books of the Bible, they would have known that God was going to send a rescuer. That this Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. And so when the Lord of the Sabbath enters into a worship center, a synagogue, you would think, he can do whatever he wants. We'll just let him. Let's worship him. Let's celebrate the possibility that a guy who potentially had a wounded hand from birth or had wounded it at some other point in life, let's celebrate that not only the Lord of the Sabbath is here, but the Lord of the body is present and he can do whatever he pleases. But no, they watched skeptically. They watched in bitterness. How is he going to jack up our rules? We've, we're here to protect this place. We're here to protect this house. But they certainly weren't here to, to worship Jesus for who he was. And so they watch in skepticism, right? And so what happens? Verse 3, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save a life or to kill. But they were silent. In Matthew's account of this story, Matthew also tells this story, Jesus knows that those religious people out there, if they had a sheep that fell into a hole on the Sabbath, they would be interested in getting the sheep out of the hole. I mean, money was involved. He saw the hypocrisy that so many of us are plagued with. Like, I will hold you to this rule, and I will do whatever I want over here. And he challenges the people in the book of Matthew. He says, you guys, how much more valuable is this man? This man is a worshiper. This man leans into Jesus. This man knows that Jesus Christ has the power and the authority to heal him. And you guys are over here skeptical, saying, he better not. He better not. This is the Sabbath day. So they were fighting for the Sabbath, a good thing, rather than for the healing of an image bearer of God. They chose the man-made rules over the holiness. The religious people continuously missed the fact that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and they missed the fact that he was Lord of the Sabbath. This was his day. But it's kind of like the street, the street over there, right? There's a sidewalk. It's about 8 to 12 feet away from the street, right? And you make a rule. Kids, don't run in the street. You hit a bus, bad, very bad, right? And so what do we do? And naturally, like we're, we're like, I don't want my child to be harmed. So you know what? We're going to tell our kids, like, don't even cross the sidewalk, right? Like if you're across the sidewalk, ooh, you're getting close to the street. Fair play. 
But the problem is, they were never told. Jesus, it was never read. There was no part of this law that the religious people knew that said that Jesus Christ couldn't heal on the Sabbath day. But they're over here saying, you've crossed the sidewalk. You've crossed the sidewalk. And, and they were standing for something that wasn't biblical truth. And Jesus Christ looks around at them, verse 5, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Grieved at their hardness of heart. These situations revealed their hardness of heart. They were here in the synagogue, and they're probably there to do their religious duty. But when Jesus comes in, it reveals a part of who they actually are. It reveals that their heart is hard. And it's very important, church, to realize that there's no place in the scriptures where hardness of heart is a good thing. There's no place. No place where we celebrate hardness of heart. In fact, it's a sign of, of being damned. That, that you don't understand Jesus. And again, to these religious people, that would have been so radically offensive to say, like, your, your heart is hard. You're not there. It's a picture of the, old, the new covenant. In Jeremiah, it talks about hearts of flesh and hearts of stone. And God is going to take out the heart of stone and insert a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh that wants Jesus, that wants worship. That wants to follow him in humility. And the religious people have bumped up against this Jesus. Who is Jesus? How can he do this? How is he Lord? How can he tell me what to do? How can he be in my house and break my rules? A battle that many of us have. Can he tell me that? Can he guide me this way? Can he take my Sunday mornings? Can he make me serve? Can he? And the religious people revealed that situation, revealed their hardness of heart. And you see once again that Jesus is grieved and he's angered with their hardness of heart. So let's look at a third spot here where Jesus is angered. If you go to Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus. It's Holy Week. He's entered and the people are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king is here. And Jesus Christ goes to his temple, right? And we're in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. And it's full. So he drives out all the people. Let's just read it. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. So if you have a Bible, perhaps with some of the pictures in the back, or you have maps in the back of your Bible, um, shoot, this one doesn't have those, but you can go to Google. Google has pictures. Um, and you look up Herod's temple, you're going to see this huge building with these different rooms. And the room that on the outside, one of the largest rooms, is called the Court of the Gentiles. And this was an opportunity, right? The Jews were God's chosen people. In Deuteronomy, I want to say seven, it says, like, I chose you not because you were awesome, not because you were a huge nation, but I chose you because I'm going to work through you. No one can say, Israel, that you've done it, but I have done it through you. And so Israel, the Jews, have received the gift from God, right? 
But even in the process, even all the way back in the Older Testament, the Egyptians, some came with Israel as they left Egypt. You hear about Rahab, another woman who was saved as Israel went past Jericho or went through Jericho, right? And so in this time, there was an opportunity for those who were not Jewish to come and worship in the temple of the Most High God. And the Jews were like, well, we need a place to sell stuff because people don't want to travel hours and hours. Like, do you want to carry a pigeon for hours and hours? No way. So we'll just, we'll just sell it. And you know what? Why don't we set it up in the court of the Gentiles? I mean, they're not Jews. We'll just set it up. It'll be great. We'll sell stuff. We'll make a few bucks. And Jesus is angered. This courtroom, this place of worship, this place of prayer has become a den of robbers. These people had, we believe, you know, made some money off of the selling of pigeons. You know, if you had come from Egypt over and you wanted to tithe or even buy that pigeon, you would need to exchange money to have the right currency for the tithe or for the pigeon or for the the bull. And, of course, you need a convenience fee. Like, I mean, I'm selling it to you. It's like a hot dog at a baseball game, right? You're like, you're charging me what? I could buy 12 real Angus beef hot dogs and probably 10 buns for that fee. Are you kidding me? But in that convenience fee, in that these religious people have taken in money. And so not only have they pushed out the Gentiles by filling their space with booths to sell stuff, not only have they stolen money from them, more importantly, they stole worship from God. The house of God, which is to be an open place for people to come, hear about the one true God, had become a place for the Jews to conveniently pick up what they needed for their sacrifice and had become a hurdle, perhaps, in many ways for the Gentiles to come and worship. And Jesus is angered that this house of prayer, this house of worship, has been withheld in some sense from the Gentiles. And he clears it out. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has cleared it out. In the book of John, we find in John chapter 2 that he clears it out a first time earlier in his ministry. He comes in so frustrated that the animals have overtaken the building that he makes a cord and he clears out the animals and he clears out the tables and he clears out the people. This is my father's house. It's meant for worship. And his holiness was challenged by the filth of animals by the wickedness of the hearts of men, and by the lack of worship. The Gentiles had been withheld from worship. So let's tie these three stories together here. What does Jesus get angry about in these three stories? Jesus gets angry when the children and the Gentiles are kind of pushed out, that they can't worship. When they all want to come, when they want to come to the to Jesus to have him lay his hands on him, the disciples withhold it from them. And when they want to come into the temple to worship or to perform their sacrifice, the, the court of the Gentiles, it's busy, it's full. Go find a corner and go worship over there. Jesus gets angry. A second spot where Jesus gets angry is when a man who is, has a withered hand, an image bearer of God, they don't, they, don't, they don't want him to be healed on the Sabbath by the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus gets angry when his image bearers don't get to worship because of man-made rules. And lastly, he gets angry when the holiness of God is defiled. 
Does anyone love pigeons in here? Nobody. We used to raise cattle in northern Minnesota. And when you would let the cattle out to pasture, the pigeons would take over the barn. A filthy creature. Now, I will say at my old church, there was a guy who you would never believe, ever. You would ever, never believe. He raised pigeons. And he had 200 pigeons. And he knew more about pigeons than I could ever imagine in my entire life. Different kinds of wings and different kinds of tails. And all the things that I didn't know. I just knew that if I didn't sneak up, I couldn't get any with my 12-gauge. <clears throat> but anyways, um, these, they're a filthy animal. And the point of this is sacrifice. You know, the point of this is worship. Like we exist as created beings to worship the most high God. This, that's our purpose. Our number one purpose and through these avenues of a temple that's supposed to display the holiness of God, that's supposed to display his character and his nature, certainly in a limited sense, is being withheld from people. So what's your anger anchored in? Are you getting angry about the right things? So here's the idea that I want you to walk away with today. Righteous anger exists. Righteous anger is anchored in God's holiness and his love for his people. Righteous anger exists. Perhaps you've struggled with anger and you're like, what does the Bible have to say about this? So you maybe go to a concordance you find the word anger and you look it up and you come to like Ephesians 4.26. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, right? This is a great text. It's a very true text. But there's, there's a purpose for that text. There's a foundation that helps you address anger. And you've got to read the first couple chapters of the book of Ephesians before you get there to be fueled to act on that verse. And here you have an example that Jesus Christ displays for us. And it's important to note, like when Jesus Christ goes through life, he's a picture. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So we, we aren't Christ, but we want to follow him. And for many of us, when we put the, the, when Matthew puts the list of things that I get angry about to the list of things Jesus gets angry about, my list is a lot longer than Jesus' list. And I, and I wonder if that's yours, too. Church, Jesus, he never gets angry at Rome. In his ministry, as his population grew, he never got angry at Rome. Never. He could have laid a foundation because in about 30 to 40 years, they were gonna, Rome was going to take Christians, hang them on poles, and burn them. He could have laid a foundation against that. Why didn't he address it? Jesus never gets angry at sinful people. Never does he say to anybody like, get away from me, you wicked pagan. Ever. But his anger is directed continuously to the ones who say, I know that there's a God. I know that he's sovereign. I know that he's loving. I know that he's merciful. And I know that he's gracious. To his disciples, when they get in a boat after feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, and they're like, did anyone bring bread? Jesus, we don't have any bread. He gets frustrated at them. Don't you believe? Where's your faith? What, what do we get angry about? 
what is your anger anchored in? Is it anchored in his holiness and his love for people, or is it anchored in your convenience? Your view of protection? When we look at our anger, does it reflect the care for the holiness of who God is and his worth, that he's worthy of worship? When we look at our anger, does it show concern for where others are with God? Would the last person that you got angry with say to themselves, man, they love God. Man, they love God. Even thinking back to the beginning, like even with our children, right? I get angry often over like my convenience is pricked, right? I, I want I want life to be convenient. I had this plan for today and, and you're spoiling it. And I lash out, right? What what does your anger display? Is there any part of your anger that displays that God is worthy of our praise, that he is holy, that he loves us? That's the challenge for us as a church. I read a number of blogs in the last few years of just people continuously, not that we're beholden to what everyone thinks of us, but how angry religious people are. And I think religious people are angry. It's the Christ followers I'm wondering about. Where is our anger rooted in? Does our anger point people to Jesus Christ or our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or does it point people that they need to get out of my way before I do something about it? So here's some application that I want us to wrestle with. There's a number of things, but there's undoubtedly more trials to come, right? And trials, situations, reveal our heart. They reveal who we are. And so I got two things for you. I would love for you, or a suggestion for you, is to learn more about who God is. It's a lot harder to get angry when I know that God loves me. And I know, I know you know that. Oh, it's easy. We're at church. Yay, church. Jesus loves me. Woo! Yeah, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? That nothing that comes at you will be more than you can bear? What does that mean? Those are nice words. Great Bible verse. I'll put it on my cup. It'll be great. Yeah, what does it mean? How does it apply on Sunday afternoons, right? Because you know Sunday afternoon's coming. Going home from church. Woo! Will I be happy or will I be angry? Or Monday. There's, then there's Monday. Yay Mondays, right? And Wednesdays and the Fridays and the plans, right? Learn, learn more about who God is, is my suggestion, right? Pray and ask him for more of him. God, I believe in you. Help my unbelief. If you're not sure really where to start, I would encourage you to start with the book of Daniel, chapter 4. I love this text, verses 34 to 35. I'm not going to go there because we'll be here for another few hours, but we're not going to, right? Go there. Go to Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, and read them again and again. Like, God, who are you? How are you in control? How are you loving? How are you gracious? Go to Job 39. If you read the book of Job ever, the first couple chapters, super interesting. The middle 30 are tough, brutal. What are they even talking about? And then God shows up in 39 and says, hey, were you there at the beginning? 
were you did were you there when I put that mountain there or I I did this or then I did that? And it gives you this picture of how awesome and huge God is. And what does it look like? How does it impact our anger when we know this huge, awesome, powerful God? Look at Psalms 8. How majestic is his name in all the earth. It builds up our view of who God is. And it might just leak into your Sunday afternoons. It might just impact the words that come out of your mouth. Jesus Christ functioned on the earth with full trust in his Father. So much that when people belittled the work and the way of God, his character, God's character, Jesus was angered at them. So learn about who your God is. How does this verse apply to my life? And then a second suggestion is this. If you want to turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's a suggestion here. Listen to the whole situation. If God is sovereign, so you know whatever is going to happen tomorrow or the next day. Perhaps you got those emails on Friday, the ones you love. It's like 4.30 and people are like, God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. God loves you. God likes you. God died for you. There's a lot of optimism going into those emails about who you are and what God's going to do with you. He's going to work this out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a lot of optimism. You can go into money optimistic, Monday optimistic about what God can do in and through the situation. But because God is sovereign, because of God's character, we can listen to the whole story. We can hear what was going on, right? We can be quick to listen, right? A second thing is, should we speaking, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak. Or should we say anything? Should we say anything at all? Some of us speak so quickly and we would do ourselves better and the church better if we would just shut our mouths and lean into who God is and let the broken people talk and hear what they have to say before we speak foolishly or out of passion of our heart. And the third thing, right, is this picture of does our anger produce the righteousness of God? Does our anger produce the righteousness of God? In my life, there was an era where I was heavily involved in politics. It was, I would say it was my life. And because of some of those passionate, uh, because of my anger lashing out in me because I was right and my people were right, I know of two people that won't ever speak to me again. And I've reached out to them. This has been just a burden on my heart for years. I'm forgiven. God is good. But I offended them over something that doesn't even matter. Those situations that we were arguing about in 1998, you know what? They're not even on the news anymore. I didn't offend them over the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you must be reconciled to God. I offended them over third and fourth issues. 
things that eternally didn't matter. Certainly there's passions and convictions about other things which are fine. But my presentation to these two people in particular and others did not say that Matthew Morgan had the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ within him, that God wins. He will not get voted out. And it's been a deeply convicting thing. So what have we been angry about, church? Now, I've talked about kids. I've talked about some other situations, but how are you doing treating your spouse? It's fun to be nice to strangers. I love it. It's super easy. It's hard to be nice to my kids, and it's hard to be nice to my spouse. But the gospel is revealed in how we treat one another, who, who, with whom we are the closest. What, what does our anger at home show us about where our heart is anchored? Does it desire my spouse to grow closer to Jesus? Consider these things. And folks, as we wrap up today, normally if we were in our usual spot, we would take communion and we're not going to. But in a sense, communion is more than a chunk of bread and a little sippy thing of juice or dipping it in the juice. It's a picture of a meal. And we're going to have the opportunity to eat together. You eat as your family or eat as a group. We want to encourage you to do that. But I do want us to take time, not lose the time, to really reflect on where is our anger rooted in. And I want us to confess our sin, church. Like, Jesus gives me hope. Because when I consider all the things I've been angry out about, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And Jesus Christ, he forgives sin. So we can come to him. The point of this message isn't to, to belabor us with new laws or new rules, but the point is to say, like, there's freedom and there's hope. There are things to be passionately passionate about, and there are things we need to let go, or we need to function in with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have that hope. It is an eternal hope. It lasts more than two years and more than four years and more than 20 years. It is Jesus. And Jesus Christ died for angry people like me so that I might confess my sins of not only just lashing out in anger, but areas where I didn't trust him. Not only lashing out in areas, but areas where I didn't grieve what was going on, where I lashed out. And so as we sing here in a moment, let's take some time, even in this song, though we're not walking up to take communion, Let's take some moment to sit before our maker and be like, Jesus, I need a savior. Thank you for being there for me. Thank you for living a life that displayed perfect anger. And thank you for dying on the cross so that I could be forgiven of my sin. And perhaps anger isn't what you're wrestling with. Perhaps you're wrestling with other sin. It's a good time to do that too. So we as a church can come in and we can acknowledge our weakness and we can acknowledge our brokenness and we can be forgiven because Christ lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we couldn't die and he rose again so that we could hope in him. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful to you for who you are. Lord, I'm grateful for Jesus who, who lived, uh, lived out these things like, like I never could. God, I'm thankful that we get his good works as Christians, God, and I'm thankful that we get forgiveness 
for areas where we have screwed up so badly. God, I pray that this church, that your church, God, would really evaluate the things we become angry about. God, that we'd really evaluate, Father, um, the message that we're portraying to the world in and through our anger. God, I pray that you would transform our anger to be one that defends your righteousness and holiness, Father, and that we consider where to place the other concerns. God, I lift up those who are grieving. God, grieving the loss of jobs, grieving the betrayal of family or friends. God, grieving um, perhaps the loss of a person or the loss of health. God, I pray that they would mourn that they would not mourn like those who have no hope because they have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're working these things out for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, use your church to subtly transform the world. Or let's start in Vinton and this state and this country. God, use this church to transform the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and our love for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.